Dr. Stephen Porges is the creator of the Paradigm Shifting Polyvagal Theory, and he joins me in today's episode for an extended conversation on critiques of and new additions to the polyvagal theory, including the new mixed states of fawn, appeasement, and intimacy. He has a brand new book coming out called Our Polyvagal World, which I do recommend, but I'll do a book review on that in a future episode. And he just released a new paper called The Vagal Paradox, A Polyvagal Solution. I'll have links to both of those in the description, but we are gonna be talking about the new paper and the new book in this episode in a lot of detail. This episode will definitely challenge and deepen your understanding of the polyvagal theory. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a therapist, a coach, and the creator of the Polyvagal Trauma Relief System. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken, where I teach you how to live with more calm, confidence, and connection without the psychobabble. But I know you're not here for me, so let's get to Dr. Porges. New book, uh, Our Polyvagal World, and a new paper, the Bagel Paradox, a polyvagal solution. A couple huge things coming out from you, for, from you uh, currently. Let's start off with our uh, the new book, all right? Our polyvagal world. So first off, who's the book for? We'll, we'll, I'm going to start off kind of light. I have a little more complex, a little more uh, into the weeds of the theory later mm, on. We'll start you off just want to get you want to get warmed up. That's fine. That's you. yeah. We're just warm. Yeah. Yeah. So who's uh, the, who's the new book for our, poly, our polyvagal world? Who's that for? Okay. So the polyvagal theory, when it came out, it came out of my science roots and was for my colleagues or what I thought my colleagues would be interested in knowing about. It was for me. It was my own journey of discovery. And scientists are a little, let's say, um, I was going to term egocentric, but they're certainly focused about what they do. And they think that their problems are the most important problems. And this is, they, they see the world through their own vision. And polyvagal theory came from that. And when you go back and read the, uh, the original theory and also the papers that led up to that, you would know that I was working in obstetrics, basically looking at the uh, high-risk babies. And I was confronted with a paradox. And that is how can heart rate, that creates a pattern of bradycardia, which is too slow and not enough oxygen to the brain, be vagal, and, and also heart rate variability be vagal. How can the vagus both yeah. keep you healthy and kill you? And that was well, really, yeah, go ahead. Justin. That I actually want to, I want to I put a pin on that because I'm going to bring that up later on yeah. regarding your paper, which is the vagal paradox. Yeah. So I was looking through, you have a, I didn't realize how much you have written. Uh, not just book wise, but your the scientific articles that your research it is an incredible amount. Uh, even before I think 1994 was like the year of introducing polyvagal theory to the world, yeah. right? Yeah. Before that, there was what 20 to 30 years worth of research on. Well, longevity does help. Yeah, there, there <laughs> persistence and longevity. Yeah, my first publication is in the late 1960s, and it was the first really the the first quantification of heart rate variability as a variable that changed under mental effort. But I think your question is, who's the book written for? So we can that get the, right yeah, to yeah. <laughs> we can get right to that. And I was really saying that everything, uh, my tradition or my history or my training is to write to my colleagues. And so there's always been this kind of disconnect between my writing 
And when I'd get on like a podcast with you where I would yeah. talk about things or I'd give talks in public or their YouTube's out there where people find me relatable, accessible, and they kind of track it, but they can't really read the articles. So there's a disconnect because what you're seeing in the articles is really my academic history and who I write for. And so I had a real problem. I, I needed a voice. I wanted a voice to translate what I see and what I saw really in terms of how the nervous system supported health, growth, restoration, or really in a sense, the foundational building blocks of humanity. If we want to get really to the basic part of it, because polyvagal theory is not about just high-risk babies having bradycardias. It's about trusting others and our, what our body does when we trust others and what happens to our body when we're in the states of threat. Well, I'm very fortunate because, you know, one of the products of my relationship with my uh, loving wife was uh, two wonderful sons. One son is a neuroscientist who is a faculty member at the University of Florida and actually has patents and research on uh, auricular vagal nerve stimulation, the devices oh, no on kidding. the ear. Yeah, but he's not the one I wrote the book with. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Because yeah, he's the academic and he has to stick within his own boundaries. But he's, you know, in a sense, uh, integrating a lot of these ideas into his own creative work. He's an imager, plus interested in vehicle function, plus he integrated neuropeptides, which is what my wife Sue studies, oxytocin. Well, the other son, if we can say that, not in any uh, diminutive way no, no, no. or dismissive way, is Seth. And Seth was a journalist. And then Seth decided that he would start making documentary movies. And he had a very successful movie out called Class Action Park. And you get a touch of who Seth is if you watch that movie. He's in it. And he uh, it's, it's a documentary, of course. And he's making several others. And he said to me, he said, Dad, I'd like to translate your ideas into something that is readable. And this started this very interesting collaboration. And... Uh, to me, I, I have to st step back from it and actually share my own visceral reaction to it. Okay. Seth is extraordinarily bright. I mean, anyone who knows him or has met him realizes that this is kind of, this is a brilliant kid. Uh, I'm a, and I'm a proud father. So, but here's the issue. When your kid is writing your work, how do you deal <laughs> with that? And who, who tells whom what to do? And the, it, it worked out very nicely because Seth, basically start working out the narrative and writing and I would rewrite and he would rewrite it back to what it was because <laughs> the the strategy was I would start writing it and making it too dense and he yeah. says we have an agenda here and that is to communicate to people now the paradox of the whole journey not only was that I was now literally a passenger of in a sense carrying a, a fruit basket of ideas and he was now the great communicator the orator of the theory but the interesting part to me was when I had the book read to me with a, with the basically I if you you can use your computer to read your text and I heard yeah. my voice I didn't hear Seth's I heard my voice and so there was this remarkable thing that Seth was able not only to capture the ideas, but in many places or in general to capture my voice, but to capture it at, without the complexity of 
the scientist. Yeah. So he he the book does what it's supposed to do. It's a book for everyone. It's a book yes. to explain this part of our body. In a sense, what I would say is a metaphor. It's helping us claim our evolutionary heritage. When we know about who we are and the resources that we that come on board with this remarkable nervous system, we can be a better person. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do think the book hits the target. It's obviously written for a more general audience. I mean, if you go from your original The Polyvagal Theory book, extremely dense, yes. uh, very difficult to read. I, I had to have a dictionary right by me and I was just constantly back and forth. But then the other ones you've written since then have been easier, more easily accessible. This one is extremely, I would say, easy yeah. to access. And I like how you took the theory and applied it to things like solitary confinement in prison. Yeah. Your your section on oxytocin, I think, was probably my favorite. I don't want to ruin it because it, <laughs> it there's a really beautiful way that you wrote it. Or I, I'm assuming you wrote that part. Of it. Well, it does say every now and then it'll say I, Stephen. So I'm assuming you wrote that section. Well, you, you have to understand Seth's the writer. It okay. doesn't mean that the ideas and the storylines and the information aren't mine, but he's creating right. the voice. And what makes it unique, there are a lot of these books that are, quote, written by the star with or with or without the writer. And some mm. of the stars, when you read their books, you, you wonder, where did they get that skill set to communicate? In this case, my son was able to truly capture my voice and capture the history of this because he's part of me or I'm part of him. It's really kind of a beautiful yeah. journey. Uh, but I really want to give him credit uh, for this ability, this wonderful skill set to take ideas and to provide a framework of presentation which becomes accessible. I have now been using another term in my polyvagal world. I talk about the, the greatest gift that we can give is our own accessibility. Mm. Why? Because it makes other people accessible, which pays us back multiple times. Seth took these ideas and made them accessible. And what is, the beauty of that is it means that tens of thousands, literally, of people will start incorporating these concepts in how they see the world and how they interact with each yeah. other. Oh, absolutely. Take me a step back. I was assuming that you wrote a chunk, he wrote a chunk. Oh, that's that's even more impressive because I couldn't tell a difference. There was, there was a, yeah. in, the, in the opening section, the, there were references to the Hulk and Bruce Banner and I think Spider-Man, Spider-Sense was in there. That's so him. That's, that, that, yeah, that felt very, uh, I was assuming. But then yeah, the rest I, of it, I'm I, like, I, I couldn't it, tell. I give him the freedom of that. Because he is relating <laughs> to his audience. However, uh, every, the the real issue is the content and the how yeah. truthful and accurate is Absolutely. the content, and that's that's all that's me. But when I say it's all my content, but it's his, his ability to artfully put it into yeah. let's say palatable, it's accessible. And I will tell you yeah. the. The blur for me, the own personal mask, the veil, is that when I hear it, I think it's me, and it, and it's it and it's um, and I think that when you when you realize that your son can basically convey you, um, what it, it's not only a beautiful gift, it's also a great relief. It means mm. that the ideas are not stuck or locked inside of you, and I have to actually share this as as an academic for decades. 
the greatest frustration I felt was the frustration of being unable to communicate what was literally locked inside of me. And so I can sit back and say, wow, here's the voice. And what's going to be the next book? <laughs> wow. Amazing. So let's take it a step further here. In this book, there's a there's a section on mixed states, particularly yeah. particularly uh, appease, appease and fawn. Yeah. So let me qualify this. Uh, people have written to me asking, hey, how does fawn fit into the polyverbal yeah, theory. Yeah. And my default response has always been, I've never seen Portis, Dr. Portis talk about it, but I conceptualize it as a behavioral adaptation to a stuck yeah. defensive state or to a mixed state. Yeah. I, I thought it could be any of the states, but in this one, it sounds like uh, okay. you and let staff me, are qualifying yeah, it let, as Let me a bring you back to the history of that. So okay. in November, 2019, I was giving a talk in London mm -hmm. and someone said, tell me about appeasement and fawning and i said yeah. i will need to think about that <laughs> and, yeah and then i over over a decade i was confronted by uh, uh, a psychologist whose name is rebecca bailey and a survivor of uh being abducted for over i think it was 19 years and that's jc dugard and rebecca and jc were confronting me because they were very upset with the stockholm syndrome and they mm. thought polyvagal theory would have a different take on JC's experience of being abducted. And that is they she's being criticized in the press uh, for being compliant and it says loving the guy that she detested. And the part was so we finally actually got this together in in the within the past year. We wrote a paper called Appeasement. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the whole idea, what I started to realize working with them was appeasement is kind of like a super uh, a, uh, a superhero's skill. It And here we have to be very careful. And I have to really give you kind of a, a, a basically caveat. This is not something everyone can do. You know, you've always heard that. Like, yeah. It's it's basically there. It's like if someone can, you know, is a savant. We say, oh, wow, what genius savant. But when someone has this capacity to appease a predator, when under the most uh, adverse situations, that is a nervous system that needs to be respected and honored. And it's not a nervous system that needs to be emulated, meaning that if you think that, yeah. that you should become like that, and all you're going to do is be uh, basically your body may not go for that ride. It may may fall apart, it may shut down. This is a remarkable uh, narrative of a nervous system under the worst conditions. And it's really a blended state because it has uh, features of, of all kinds of fear, not just fight flight, but immobilization, but it still enables a sufficient access to that ventral social engagement system, the face and the voice so that it's convincing enough to uh, to basically uh, make the predator think you're on the same team. What a remarkable adaptive reaction. And that is appeasement. It, appeasement is super. It's a super skill set. And, you know, it's it's kind of like, almost like I can fly, you know, yeah. but it's, the, so it's something we honor. And when, when we meet people who have that. Now, fawning is much more reflexive. And fawning in itself is, is dangerous because 
what happens when people fawn is predators lose interest. And if you have abducted someone and you lose interest in them, what's going to happen? It can end up with, with someone being murdered or something really catastrophic happening. So it's more like a dorsal vagus shutdown. The body says, I, I can't fight it. I'm gone. But fawning and appeasement, to me, are categorically different uh, adaptive reactions. Makes totally makes sense. And I think with fawning in particular, I had conceptualize it as a, a heavy mix of shutdown with some yeah. other defensive state activation because it seems to me there's some surrendering of the self yeah as, as, i mean just metaphorically very loosely the self so yeah. but that seemed fawning to me always felt like it's there's some behavior or grouping of behaviors that one undergoes in order to reduce the amount of you know mm -hmm. shutdown or threat mm -hmm within their system that they're feeling. So it's not, I'd never thought of it as a state in of itself or a mixed state, but as a behavior as a result of other states or mixed states. Yeah, I would also say it has a degree of numbness or dissociation sure. with it. Oh yeah. And so it, it it's on the way of not being there totally, but it may still be exhibiting a certain amount of overt behavior. So what's the line between a behavior and a mixed state or or a, or a state. Well, the the issue is uh, behaviors. I actually was on an email with this where I was trying to use the word phenomenological. I'm going to use the word observable. Behavior is what you observe, and what we're making yeah. a series of inference regarding what we can't observe, and we're saying this is the neural structure that supports what we can observe. And this has created great confusion because people start thinking of sympathetic right. nervous system as fight flight. But what happens when you're running and playing? Your face is animated, you're interacting, you know, you're in your body and it's enjoyable. So that's a mixed state. Play is a mixed state, but running out of fear is not. It's something different. Likewise, immobilization out of fear is you're gone. But immobilization without fear is shared moments of intimacy you know where you're comfortable in the presence and proximity of another i've also heard you call so this was a a nice new wrinkle for me from the book uh, because there's the primary states but there's also mixed states but there's also kind of seems to be these states along with somebody else so immobilization yeah. while safe could be called stillness and i've heard you i think it was you though yeah called that but mixed uh stillness with somebody now can be called intimacy, intimacy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's kind of like a new wrinkle is adding: is somebody else involved? And then, yeah, they yeah if we think about immobilization, which normally mm -hmm. doesn't have a social component, but intimacy is a social act. Uh, but what's interesting with intimacy is voice, proximity, and gesture may be more important than basically facial gaze at that point. In a sense, the bodies may be so comfortable they don't have they they don't need the reassurance of repeated face-to-face -face interaction. Let me, let me take a, st a step further if I can. It, it's really important to me to be accurate in, in my concepts and how I'm relaying this information, right? So couldn't we look at any behavior and make some sort of inferences as to what may be happening on our nervous system level, Yeah. right? Well, let, let me deconstruct that question a little bit okay. differently. Okay. Please. So, and then I'm not sure I sent you this paper, but there's a paper on the science of safety. Uh, in that paper, I talk about psychophysiological parallelism as a, literally a false flag. 
So what we're talking about is we have motor behavior observables, we have autonomics, yes. and we have brain. Now, there's not always a one-to-one. Autonomics are really a foundation upon which there are many behaviors, many uh, psychological, basically your cortex is large. And so you have lots of creativity going on there, but your brainstem that regulates autonomic nervous system is very small. Right. So it's one to many. And uh, one to many follows a hierarchy because the autonomic states are really pretty limited. That's what makes it interesting to study. Right, right, right. So that, that's and, where, that's yeah. where the for me, the question is, well, okay, well, what else could be added to this? Because the primary state seemed pretty cut and dry. There's yeah. uh, the ventral vagal, dorsal vagal, sympathetic, right? So yeah. pretty cut and dry, if I just put it loosely. The mixed states, you, you mix those together and you, you get basic mixed states, which I which I understood to be play, stillness, and freeze. Yeah. And, but then and we you have, have appeasement also is really a mixed state because so, it's right. not. So now we're at, now appeasement is in there, fawn is in there. Couldn't you continue adding things like exercise? You're mobile, but alone. Couldn't you? So is exercise yeah, you, now a mixed you, state? You can you can interpret it and you can right. play with it and it's really saying you have limited states or circuits and you can mix and match right. them and what are the adaptive advantages you get by mixing and matching right. and what you learn when you play that game is the potency of mixing the social engagement system with the rest of the body and that that is that tells you something it says that yeah you can go immobile you can go in fight flight and it's all good. It's all pleasurable. It's all healthy. If and only if yeah. you keep those systems out of defense. And how do you do that? You keep the social engagement system on board. So it's a right. journey. So remember, the ideas came from literally a theoretical model. They were informed by the clinic, by listening to therapists and people asking me these questions. Sure. And then we started to figure it out. And then also asking the next level question as a scientist, are there experimental models to test those specific right. uh, hypotheses? And that we're going to get to that too. I want to definitely yeah. leave some time for that. So it, it kind of seems to me like there's the primary states and really there's kind of an endless gradient of mixed states potentially because let, let's say appeasement is, I don't know, I'm just making this up. I have no idea if this is grounded in reality, but 80%... Uh, safety is active and 20% are shut down, completely making this up. Well, what if it was 90% and 10% or 60-40? It, it might result in some well, other what sort you, of... You're asking, another way of looking at it is if you think of appeasement as recruiting all three states, and now you're asking the important inputs from those three states, you're really defining whether or not the nervous system is resilient. Because as the numbers get greater for the sympathetic mobilization or shutdown, then appeasement doesn't work. And it, right. it, it is, it's basically a shift out of it. So they need, it's the competency of the social engagement system that enables appeasement to be functionally adaptive. Totally makes sense, yeah. So am I, am I correct in understanding the mixed states as potentially, I mean, if we're going to like name them like there could be an unending number of these things yeah so so i okay. got into this um kind of like email exchange this morning because okay. uh, i was with a person who was a dance movement therapist and she was basically saying uh, uh her reading of my work was basically uh i would say not acknowledging uh dance movement therapy and i said well yeah i i do in terms of 
movement without fear right? and and the social movement uh, but she was seeing the world through uh, this is really what i i would mind to get the, this final point across is if you see the world through the polyvagal lens you start understanding these other systems if you see right, the world yeah. through those those lenses like dance movement therapy you're not going to understand polyvagal theory <laughs> it's not it's right. not going to be but polyvagal theory will give you a tool a perspective to understand lens. what you are doing yeah it's really kind of like a paradigm isn't it yeah it's a right. paradigm I, I... But but it's an asymmetrical lens, so it, it gives you insight in one direction and less insight in the other. It, it's like, this gets into the new paper, if you're a neuroanatomist, is polyvagal theory going to give you insights into neuroanatomy? Not necessarily. Uh, but uh, with polyvagal theory, you can utilize features of, of neuroanatomy to understand the mechanisms that you're studying. Yeah, so for like dance therapy, that's not, uh, or dance, that's, we could understand that in terms of play and co-regulation and, and yeah, safety, I yeah. would assume. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. And and especially, you know, a lot of people don't like to dance, and you would ask them, why don't you like to dance? And of course, they feel self-conscious. What are oh, they really terrible. telling you? Ter yeah, what they're terrible. telling you, they're telling you their body's in a state of threat. Yeah. Right? So yeah. how can you have mobilization without fear and dance if your body is locked into the state of threat or fight flight it's just not going to work so you start understanding so polyvagal theory is is helpful in explaining accessibility to these different circuits i really hope you're enjoying the discussion between dr portis and myself so far i want to take a quick break to tell you about my stuck not broken total access membership with the total access membership you get total access to all of my trauma recovery courses and my private community. All of my courses in the Total Access membership are built from the ground up on the polyvagal theory. The first one is Polyvagal 101, which teaches you PVT in very simple terms. The second one is Building Safety Anchors, which helps you build the strength of your uh, safety state. And the third one is Unstucking Defensive States, which teaches you how to actively feel and relieve your stuck defensive state. I really want you to be able to live with more calm, confidence, and connection. And I, yeah, I want you to reduce your anxiety, your numbness, and your anger as well. You can learn more about the Total Access membership through the link in the description. All right, enjoy the rest of my discussion with Dr. Porges. Okay, so let's we'll move on to another thing that's really, I put a lot of wondering into, and I, this is the popularization of the polyvagal theory is, and I asked you about this the first time we met, actually, uh, a couple of years, a few years ago? activating the vagus nerve what so okay. so first off let me, let me frame this this is not typically language that i see you using in your academic papers and i have looked i haven't scoured all of them but i've looked i've done a cursory glance at the at the least but in this new book it seems like you're endorsing this type of language or you answer oh oh the, let, let's start off by saying Please. polyvagal theory uh considers the vagus as a conduit right it's a wire it is not a, uh, a organ with uh, executive functions. And when we talk about harnessing the vagus or stimulating the vagus, hacking it, hacking it, we really have to reframe what we mean. If in general, the hacking of it or stimulating it is going up the sensory, the afferent pathway. So it's stimulating those foundational brainstem circuits. 
So and that that support health growth and restoration and the the literature is really getting quite strong on that. That is, the afferent signals are telling the brainstem you're doing well. That's that's a good stuff. The yeah. the issue though is, you know, people want to exercise their vagus, and the, this becomes a hard terminology. I use the term neural exercise right. primarily when I'm talking about the social engagement system, uh, which basically. I mean, you can even move into the uh, area of yoga or pranayama yoga, which is the ner ner basically the muscles of the face and head and the historic uh, understanding that if you utilize those muscles, you tend to feel better. And people do that in terms of singing or listening or playing wind instruments or even playing the yeah. kazoo or humming. So we find out that there are a lot of very, I would say, primitive or reflexive uh, ways that we behave that have a true neurophysiological validity if you see it through the polyvagal lens. So that makes complete sense. And in, in, in your, even in the book, it's not a huge section, but it's something that sticks out to me a lot because I spent a lot of time thinking about these kind of things. There is a section on stimulating the vagus. And yeah, in that I section, think... it's it's made very clear that there's one topic of uh, vagal stimulators, but that's that invasive surgical kind of thing. Yeah. And there's a whole other category of what you just said, which is, you know, social engagement and whatnot. Yeah. But then there's a TikTok and Instagram stuff. And this section kind of seems like it gives some credence to people claiming that their biggest nerve is being stimulated. Well, I see, I go back and say, actually, I wrote a chapter uh, that's coming out shortly on vagal nerve stimulation through the lens of the polyvagal theory. And basically, uh, you can do the auricular, you can do the implant. You can do a non uh, uh, on the neck that is non-invasive, but you really have to get to the whole understanding of the mechanisms of all forms of vagal nerve stimulation. They are functionally stimulating the afferents that lead to the brainstem areas regulating the vagus, the neural exercises. Sociality is a neural exercise. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Singing. And, and we tend to forget that. And the intervention that I had developed, the Safe and Sound Protocol, is functionally an acoustic vagal nerve yeah. stimulator. Yeah. yeah. The vocal prosody kind of range, yeah. right? Yeah. So that, that makes, and that's kind of how, how I've understood these things is that, uh, let's say someone says that they're doing this thing to hack their vagal nerve. To me, it's, I've understood it as some sort of sensory input is happening, goes to the brainstem that tells them they're safe, the brainstem sends it to the rest of the body. Yeah. That, so it's that's not about a, the vagal nerve exactly. It's about the brainstem. That really seems okay. to get the center of all this. The, okay. So when even even when Please. my good friends talk about like Bessel, the body keeps the score. Yeah. Well, the body doesn't keep the score. The brainstem. So the right. issue is the body is this. The brainstem has the surveillance circuits that sends these. Basically, you have sensors through your body, but the surveillance is being interpreted at the level of the brainstem. And the vagal nerve stimulators are affecting that surveillance system. The vagal nerve, oh, the implanted vagal nerve stimulators. All of them, all of them, and even sociality okay. are okay. basically affecting the surveillance system. It's basically shifting the valence from negativity to positivity. So so the, the vagus, we have to think of it as this very large uh, surveillance system of our internal organs. And yeah. we just tend not to think that way we think of it as a uh, especially with the popularization of vagal stimulation we think of it as an efferent or motor system we forget that the fibers that we're talking about 
occupy about 4% of the total vagal fibers that are the efferents that are going to the heart. And that's basically occupying most of the literature. And those fibers are myelinated. That's very rare. Uh, the 80% are sensory and more of the motor fibers are unmyelinated and go to the visceral organs and not to the heart other than the heart. So help me understand then. And when it comes to the book, it seems to it feel the way I read it is that the activating or stimulating the vagus nerve is being endorsed. Like, yes, these TikTok people are onto something. Yeah, you, you have to say, okay, so let's scrape all the philosophy. Is it doing any harm? Okay. Is it stimulating the vagus? Is it is it when we use a word, is it stimulating the vagus? Is it producing uh the down a down system effects of calming? Right. Yes. Is it supporting reduction of pain? Uh, is it enhancing gut issues? Yes. Is it helpful in terms of even going upstream in terms of psychological phenomena? Yes. So the literature is actually coming out very nicely, including like areas of PTSD. Uh, the point of my concern had always been that people focus on the nerve without right. thinking about right. the circuit. That's exactly and it. Yeah. So we're kind of like gentle in this world. Um, when I'm on podcasts and I've been on with people who want to hack the nervous system and I basically do this to them. And <laughs> reason I do that is it's kind of like offensive to me because the body, mm. in fact, we live in this world that if something is wrong, we fix it by giving the body something, whether right. it's a drug or a implant, the nervous system, uh, basically regulates, meaning that it's a homeostatic system that needs input and it produces output and reads what that output is doing. It's a dynamically adjusting system. So if we start as medicating, the nervous system adjusts and then it doesn't work as well. Right. I, I'm with this firm, what I want to proliferate in thinking is the concept of neural exercise. Yeah, And I'm with it's you. not a question of muscle tone, it's a question of neural flexibility and adaptation. I'm with you in that mission. All right. So the other thing with when it comes to this is let, let's say there, there's all these popular, you know, activating the vagal nerve things. Let's say there's, there's a really popular one right now, which is putting a frozen bag of peas on your chest. And someone says this stimulated my vagus nerve and I was able to go to sleep. So when it comes to stuff like this, my question is, let's just assume, well, there is, there is a signal going to the brainstem. But my question is, well, what's the signal being sent down? Is it of safety or is it more of immobilization? If well in, in the in this framing, potentially it's immobilization on that one. Right. Um, uh, the the question is, once your body immobilizes, it's going to start sending up other cues. And what is your narrative of those interoceptive cues? So this is an interesting thing, and that is, um, and, and in the world of trauma it's extremely important to start talking this way that the interoceptive feedback is the trigger for people who have had experiences of trauma. So we're a signal for you or for me, assuming we right. haven't had much trauma right. is, ah, that's kind of interesting to them is their, their body goes because the interoception, the bodily feelings are now linked with associations and those associations then trigger downflow. And with the frozen peas, you could be treating a dorsal and now you're getting immobilization. But if you can get immobilization without fear, you own a different part of your body. 
Yeah, and for someone who's who is suffering from insomnia, that might be the story of it and the experience of it might be better than. Yeah, I haven't life. heard the uh, frozen piece on. The, oh on yeah, the, uh, yeah, that's a big one. That's a big one. They call it vagal nerve icing. I hadn't heard of it, and uh, through the Polyvagal Institute editorial board, one of the assignments or whatever was oh. was do we have any thoughts about this vagal nerve icing? And I, at first I thought, are people putting icing on their skin like or some sort of cream? But no, it's ice. That's the idea. Well, the, the Wim Hof uh, has brought a lot of this uh, uh, cold water uh, yeah. because those are, in a sense, very primitive uh, vagal reflexes. They exist, but they tend to be more linked to a dorsal response. And, and they had to do with survival and reduction of metabolic activity. But as the we're diving talking, reflex? diving reflex is one of them. As we're talking, I'm starting to see that they could potentially be tamed through a psychoeducational component and where it's really the study of one's yeah. own interoception can now reframe the narrative. I would also assume that if you're learning these things with the expectation that they help, that would yeah. probably help. If you're doing these things in a group setting, that would probably well, help. So we can go back to uh, one of the pranayama yoga techniques was literally to cut the tongue and then the tongue rolls back into the into your throat literally and gives you a gag reflex. Okay. And that creates a bradycardia. If you haven't, basically you can't eat. So there's a whole preparation they go through to do this. And okay. I met a yoga uh, who had told me he did this when he was in a car wreck and it, and it basically to slow his heart rate up, to reduce the uh, the blood flow and to save his life, which is very possible. Wow. Uh, so the issue is when you gain some of these skills of regulating your body, you might be able to, it might create greater flexibility, but that's the same thing. It's like saying to someone, you know, the gag reflex that we all really detest can could be um, modified through yeah. through uh, through training and through associations. And I'm not suggesting that people do this, um, <laughs> but it's kind of like saying there's been these ancient traditions where people took these interceptive cues and said, "What can I do with them? How? What's the range that I can push my body on this?" And well, I mean that makes sense. Typically. Like you said many times, shutdown serves uh, full on yeah. shutdown has a role. It, it does have a survival function to it. We don't want to maybe yeah. induce it day to day, uh, but yeah. So o over the decade, you know, once I started talking about shutdown, I started to realize that for many people, it they may have shut down once, but the nervous system doesn't really want to go to that state. So there have been what I view as adaptive modifications, and I think freeze is one of those. But then I also think dissociation is really the most remarkable one. So where freeze is also a very physiological response, not this is high sympathetic tone, high dorsal. It's just not healthy to be in it. But dissociation is literally protecting your nervous system. It's really a remarkable adaptive one. So I saw dissociation as this brilliant uh, nervous system adaptation. And I thought that maybe we should start i don't saying we need to honor it in what it is doing absolutely as opposed to being afraid of it i i completely agree when it comes to dissociative identity disorder extreme dissociation as yeah. i understand it but it's kind of served a function and helped that yeah. individual to survive right yep yeah. let's move on to your new paper uh 
the timing of it was perfect because I had just written to you saying, hey, I have some questions about the current status of polyvagal theory. And you wrote that or you had it ready. You sent it back to me like the timing is perfect. First off, what does the newspaper do that your others haven't for those that are more into the more academic stuff here? OK, if we go through the history of polyvagal theory, it was really I'm trying to figure out a problem. This is the paper that shows you that journey. The papers were never written to say, what are the basic principles of polyvagal theory? In fact, those were extracted more in the, in the therapy in the world of clinicians. So in, in this paper, I try to come up with what are the basic principles of the theory, uh, in a sense, to take the narrative back and say, from a science perspective, what has science led to? Where did this come from? And so it really identifies the basic uh, principles of it. So that was the, the first part. Well, actually, the real first the real reason for writing the paper is that there are a lot of people who just don't understand the theory and tend to think they're experts in the theory. And I found this really, uh, you know, as a scientist, I like to have a degree of humility. And that is, I don't, uh, when I go into an area, I read and I always think, well, I got to be careful. If I make a mistake, I want to make sure that there's nothing incorrect. And in developing the theory, I was extraordinarily careful in the literature and documenting things and going back and making sure that it was consistent. So there was, in a sense, an inferential progression that led to what is the polyvagal theory. But what happened, I started to see people criticizing the theory based upon points that were never in the theory, just weren't there and tend to be adamant and start to write papers that said that there was no basis for the theory. And, and all they were doing was falsely stating things about the theory. It was really kind of interesting. You know, you would think that people who are established in a certain area would be respectful, sufficiently respectful, sure. to read the papers to see if their statements were consistent or not. But what happened was that there were basically very few, but a couple of people, who made yeah. really blatant mistakes in, in a way to foster their own research. I mean, want to be blunt about it, is they were trying to say they discovered something and polyvagal theory says that that couldn't be done. Polyvagal theory never said anything like that. And, and the issue was, so I, and actually this is very, very hard for me as a human being to basically say, I don't like, I don't mind criticizing people's science. Sure. But I don't like to go on a, a, a offense where saying people are are blatantly wrong. But it's really quite remarkable for over about a 20 year period, a couple of people were repeatedly misrepresenting the theory and publishing statements that were creating what is classically called a straw man argument. And straw man arguments are really kind of brilliant in their sense that they say, well, uh, if you make the false statement about someone's theory that you don't agree with, that theory is now wrong. So they make the false statement. They say, this isn't true. Well, the theory never said that. And I would agree with them that that's not true either. But then they would go on and on with these things. And it just didn't make any sense to me because it started getting into uh, social media and uh, basically a corruption of Wikipedia. I can't nothing on wikipedia can actually describe polyvagal theory because the same at least people are who have been criticizing have been seeding wikipedia with the same false information and it's it's been very very unsettling uh the on, on the other side is 
uh, I felt that there was a responsibility because my own view was that, okay, these people just don't know what they're talking about. And certainly, now this is the uh, the uh, misunderstanding that I had. I said, certainly the community, meaning the people who are you know, using polyvagal theory will literally defend themselves and art articulate what's different. What I hadn't realized is that the actual principles were too embedded in the theory for people to actually say, you know what you're talking about has nothing to do with polyvagal theory because they were too embedded and they were basically becoming different because they were looking at people's credentials who were writing the papers. And what this paper does, this paper also says that, look, uh, anatomy is important, neurophysiology is important, comparative neuroanatomy, but they have their limitations in what they can tell you about polyvagal theory. And anatomy is really remarkable because you can have wires, literally neuroanatomical pathways, but you don't have a clue from anatomy whether those pathways are doing anything. And then from neurophysiology, which is basically being done on anesthetized preparations, you have no idea if those same circuits work the same way in a conscious organism. So there are all these limitations. And the one that really got to me, I would say personally, was this the fallacy that if you can find things in reptiles that appear to look like what you can see in mammals, it disproves the theory. But the whole interesting part was about the evolutionary aspect of the theory was that uh, mammals, by the time they evolved around 200 million years ago, already had a ventral vagal complex that enabled them to nurse. And no reptile can still do that. So regardless yeah. of, and the reptiles we're looking at are younger than 100 million years uh, been on the thing. And even when I started to build the model, I thought, well, what if I find a reptile that, that hasn't changed much since the branching between the uh, modern reptiles and mammals came off the old extinct uh, reptiles? The problem is the molecular, the fossil record doesn't give you a good ordering because it doesn't line up with the molecular time clock. So in a sense, comparative neuroanatomy, which was a discipline, which really got its uh, basically is in place because it's supposed to give you hints about evolution, really can't line up its time clock. So it can't give you the hints that, that it claimed it could. So there's a lot of limitations of these other disciplines. But embryology, so I'm going to now do what I learned as I started to build this paper. Embryology gives you kind of a mirror of how certain uh, neural structures evolved within the history or phylogenetic history of of humans or of mammals you can actually see their their uh, anatomy changing with embryology and the interesting part is that there is a ventral migration and this is where the cardio inhibitory the vagal neurons that this happens in the embryology as well that's where yes yes and that's why the preterm baby was so it says serendipitously such a spectacular scientific preparation because the preterm baby doesn't have the complete ventral migration doesn't have a ventral vagal system working and those are the kids that had uh, literally bradycardia it was still in process of that ventral migration and that created that vulnerability for the lethal bradycardia and the issue is you can actually see this developmentally in terms of looking for manifestations in heart rate patterns as your window to that 
ventral migration. So as the neurons for cardioinhibitory neurons move ventrally, they start when they get to the, the area of the ventral vagal complex, which is the neurons that control the muscles of the face and head, we now have that heart-brain uh, relationship, the face, excuse me, face-heart relationship. And that's sucking, swallowing, and breathing, and vocalizing. And the interesting part on that is that at that point, when that system works, you have these respiratory rhythms in heart rate, and that becomes your window. And this became another kind of... Uh, criticism people said well is that rsa that's rsa yeah. yeah and but that's a mammalian respiratory heart rate relationship and what the critics critics were saying well we see heart rate respiratory relationships in other vertebrates so the theory's wrong but you don't see it coming from the ventral vagus because it's not functioning in those organisms but they then didn't understand why rsa was important RSA is important in polyvagal theory because it's an index of that ventral vagus. You can see it working. You can make your predictions of sociality, your predictions of behavior, of stress by watching this system. So it's a portal. And that was the important part. It was, in a sense, uh, respiratory science arrhythmia or vagal tone is not important to the theory, but it's important to measure hypotheses that are generated yeah. by the theory. And to me, that was totally missed. People miss these ones. Well, it seems like well, for, there's you covered a lot, right? And a lot of this I wanted to ask you about, but we'll, we'll try and uh, hit a couple of these pieces here. When it comes to critiques of the political theory, I've, I've tried to read as much as I can. There's the surface level of like people like me where, you know, we do the best we can to understand and, you know, share this information. And there are people out there who try to do that through a critique lens, but it always seems to go back to a couple of people, Grossman, yeah, Grossman, same, and same Taylor. people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't see any other, and they seem like serious scientists to me, and I, I don't hear you saying they're not. It just seems like they don't fully understand oh, it. They don't understand it. They yeah. don't understand it at all. That's okay. the, the tragedy of it. And uh, they have their own issues with their research. I'm not attacking their research. I mean, no. if you want me to put my my academic hat on, I can do you that. You haven't already? <laughs> yeah, but that's that's not the point here. There's no yeah. reason to attack their research. The only reason to attack is to say, listen, you have you have an obligation as a scientist to be truthful in what you're reporting. And if you think you found something that is inconsistent with what I found, you better know what I found or what I'm saying. Of course, if of you're course. saying something different, you know, it's it, it, it sounds, especially to see people like me, it sounds very convincing. You know, when they bring up lungfish, I'm like, oh, well, that seems pretty darn significant. And I, I see your rebuttals to it. And I'm like, well, that sounds like a great rebuttal. But re and the reality is there's only so far as a therapist. In, yeah, in general, but the issue is if, if you understood that that's not critical of you. No, no. But the issue is who gives who literally cares about a it's lungfish <laughs> and the fact that the lungfish has a respiratory rhythm a very very slow and has a myelinated vagal fiber what does that mean in terms of polyvagal theory yeah does polyvagal theory make any statement about myelinated vagal fibers from uh fish coming from the dorsal vagus it's irrelevant it's not part of the theory you made it really clear in the newest paper just how honed, like the, the political theory 
can get applied to many things. Like we talked about the mixed states you know, earlier, but yeah. you're very specific when it comes to mammals, humans, and yeah. or as best I understand it, but even more specifically, the myelinated ventral vagus, which is seems to be unique to mammals. Tell me if I got that wrong. That's, no, but it seems that, like you're very specific. And then also how that rela relates to yeah. the vagus and the vagal so, paradox. So what's interesting, in 2007, the two of those guys wrote a paper, and it was an issue of which uh, I had a major paper. In fact, the whole issue was probably was about a lot of things, heart rate variability and vagal. And I wrote in a, in a I was asked to write a uh, commentary for the whole issue, and I wrote a statement saying I had no idea where they were. Uh, actually, the quote is from... Uh, I, I basically wrote, I said, it's extremely perplexing because what they were saying had nothing to do with the polyvagal theory. This is not what the theory said. And I yeah. took a quote, which is in this paper from the original 1995 paper, which said, you know, it's all about the ventral vagus and the myelinated fibers. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what it says. Don't make it into... The argument for me was that this is just oblique to polyvagal theory. And if it's another theory, let them state their theory. But it's not what polyvagal theory says. And the interesting part is rather than ask me what I think, they're starting to, the papers were really telling me that I was wrong. Not, they were not stated as a disagreement or a misunderstanding or a debate. They're basically saying things were. We're, we're wrong. Yeah. And there's basically no place in science for that type of behavior. You can do that by mistake, but not repeatedly over multiple papers. And in in that new paper, it's only a sampling of their statements. I just, you know. Right. No, no, no yeah. I know. Yeah. I believe it was the new paper you said that the intent was, hey, I'm going to share this as a, it sounded like as a hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. In 1994, tell me what you think, science community. And you, you put it out there. Yeah. Well, that's, Nothing was etched in stone. I no. I expected there to be a lot of modifications. The issue was the modifications are really been clarifications. They haven't been modifications. Um, it's like an interesting things were done very very carefully when I built the model. So I got a couple other which I thought were interesting criticisms. Like what about the hypoglossal nerve? You know, the one that regulates the tongue. That's also a special visceral efferent, you know, so it should be part of the social engagement system. So they're saying to me, I left that out. So it's it's not saying the theory is wrong. They're saying I left that out. Well, I did I left it wasn't left out. It just evolved differently. So from our embryology, I just took the cranial nerves that regulate the structures that come off the pharyngeal arch, which are the ones that are the five cranial nerves that uh, define the social engagement system. So the theory was true to the embryology and the phylogeny. And the criticisms were, I would say, ignorant of that, even though that's what these people's strengths were in. So it wasn't, I got you from their point on me. It was, why didn't you know? This, these are, this is your area, not really mine. So it's been kind of an interesting view, view of how you navigate through other people's disciplines. And my view was I always navigate with great respect for people in other disciplines. But the main point is when you go into other people's disciplines, I'm not telling them about their theories 
their principles, their practices. I am taking information from their discipline to work in my defined area. Now, they walked into mine without even accurately reading what I had stated. So I find that, you know, just not not comfortable. Of course, yeah. You take, seems like great care to show as far as literature review, like I'm not, maybe you're not saying the way I understand it is you're saying, you know, I'm not an expert in this, this and this, but I can do a deep dive in literature. Yeah. And then it seems like sort of using that, like there's seems like there's pillars to the theory, literature review, um, evolution. Yeah. Like, Oh, then your your research as well. So like, there's things that are, it's not just, you're saying, Hey, this is my guess. There's pillars. This is standing on. It's not a theory in the way that people come up with a hypothesis or idea. Right. A, a it's actually, guess. Yeah, it's not the guess, it's derived. And so from the very beginning, I said, when people brought up criticism, I said, read the literature. I didn't extract, argue with me about my interpretation of the literature. Yeah. Don't say I'm wrong. Say that my interpretations are, are wrong. Never. There's never been a article anywhere that said I misinterpret the literature. So the issue, again, in this paper, I've been very careful about what I'm presenting. And in the new paper, what I found really uh, on this journey was this notion, or I would say reframing dorsal vagus and getting newer information on that. And that there is uh, dorsal vagus actually affects blood pressure and contractility. And that you can have, and of course, we already know within the world of trauma and mental health that dorsal vagus affects digestion. I mean, that's really comes out. But the issue is that it also can reduce blood pressure enough that can produce syncope by Mm. reducing the contractility of the heart. So there's not just cardio inhibit, excuse me, chronotropic, meaning rate. There's what's called ionotropic which is contractility. So the vagus does two things. It affects rate, but it also affects contractility. And you start seeing, again, the dynamics of a system that if it wants to mobilize, it takes those breaks off. If it wants to go quiescent, wow, it does these yeah. other things. A couple more concepts. I want to make sure we squeeze in, although they're kind of big ones, so we'll see what happens. Something new I haven't seen you talk about before is vagal efficiency. Oh, Oh, this is, okay. So, (laughs) okay, you're going to go for a ride, Justin, because you're you're seeing the future. The future. I will spit it out now, and then I'll probably have to process it later, because I don't, I probably might not be able to catch up with you, but take me for a ride. Okay, Okay, so concept of vagal tone (laughs) and vagal break, it's all peripheral. And when we're talking about neural exercises, we're talking about brainstem. Vagal efficiency is a measure of that brainstem's functioning by looking at heart rate and and basically respiratory science rhythm, your indices of vagal activity. When you have an efficient vagal break, if you take it off, your heart rate goes up. If you put it back on, it goes down. So the regression line between heart rate and the amplitude of RSA should be linear. But guess what? In typically normal, healthy people, it's very linear. But now let's do a little mix. Let's talk about people like trauma histories, not so tightly coupled. Let's talk about people who have features of what's called dysautonomia, or basically problems with the autonomic nervous system, uh, a sample of individuals with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, uh, a sample of a population with cyclic vomiting. These are uh, basically uh, 
from a from a collaborator in a gastroenterology clinic. The issue is they're basically uh, dissociated. So what you're seeing is the vagal efficiency uh, is really a mark of dysautonomia. And I think this is really going to be the future. What I don't know is whether it can be rehabilitated. You see, that's the question mm. that I don't know. Uh, but there's there's also what do you, another... What do you mean? Well, well, that, that seems important to me. What do you mean? If it I don't be, know if, if the it can neural... be rehabilitated, like the, the vagal, like if it can improve, is that what you're saying? No, no, no. Whether you, if you have, okay, let's start with this. We were doing a study on kids with gut problems and they were getting auricular vagal nerve stimulation. And I asked the question, who are the subjects? Okay, so I wanted to know, and I wanted to know the individual differences. I wanted to know who was benefiting. Interestingly, if they had a decoupled vagal efficiency, no vagal efficiency virtually at all, the vagal stimulation worked. Now, what that meant was that there was no endogenous competing feedback loop. You're going to have to break so this down in simpler terms. Okay, basically, the stimulation of reducing pain was mm -hmm. getting into the vagal system as long as the vagal system had no organization itself. It was already organizing. It would be fighting with it. And so this year, I lost you. The, the, bon the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, the issue is thinking about a prosthesis and the vagal nerve stimulator functions as a prosthesis to uh turn off the pain but if the vagal okay. system is still functioning but not efficiently it gets in the way it's a confusing signal to that brainstem of of mm. to it can't interpret it and so okay. what i'm trying to figure out is whether we can use neural exercises, whether it's like the safe and sound protocol yeah. or e e whatever I can figure out yeah. to, will that enhance uh, this metric? But the metric is extremely important because it's telling you about that brainstem circuit. You can use neural blockade. You can take drugs and knock out vagal tone, but it doesn't affect that vagal circuit because the vagal tone is peripheral. The brainstem circuit is telling you, mm. I get information from my sensory afferents. What's it going to do with it? If it reliably changes heart rate, then I have a tightly coupled efficient system. If it doesn't, you know, things may may on average look good, but they're not really well regulated. The, the part that we have to start uh, in, in a more, uh, let's say, phenomenological behavioral world, we would use the word contingent. Okay. Is the behavior contingent? So the issue is, is heart rate contingent on this heart rate pattern or this vagal tone influence? If it's contingent, you have vagal efficiency. If it lacks contingency, it's disorganized. It's chaotic. What does that have to do with therapy or just day-to-day -day oh, living or oh, doctor visits? Oh, or it, it what do we do with this? Okay, so we're or in trauma a world. Recovery. Okay, polyvagal theory basically says the body in a state of threat gets manifested on all levels. So it's your mental, your physiological, behavioral, you know, everything gets messed up. Now, the question is, uh, is this a state or is it locked into the nervous system? Polyvagal has always taken this optimistic viewpoint that we can manipulate mm -hmm. or state can be manipulated and more optimistic outcomes come out. What right. vagal efficiency tells us is that in part of, part of that state dysfunction 
is actually manifested in the regulation at the level of the brainstem. It is a atypical brainstem regulation. And what I don't know is the flexibility of that. That's what I don't know. And that's, that's going to be the future. So in the world that you, you are in with people who are uh, therapists or interested in polyvagal theory, they're looking at, uh, they see the theory and they're seeing the symptom clusters in, in individuals, patients, and even in themselves. They're seeing what used to be called psychosomatic, or uh, they're now seeing them more in terms with a functional medicine model, that these are functional changes that are occurring. And they tend to all, or many of them reflect dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system and primarily dysfunction of the vagal regulation. So the question is, we have a marker, but what can you do with that marker? The marker tells you that there's going to be vulnerabilities, but we want to optimize the individual. So I am really thinking about how can I build my, well, first of all, I'm going to try to test whether or not this can change. So is vagal efficiency the markers that you're talking about? Yes. It, it almost sounds like if one could uh, measure vagal, vagal efficiency, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, but there might be actually some predictive kind of quality to it. There's tremendous predictive quality to it because wow. when we look at it in, if we take individuals in a, a gastroenterology clinic and look at it, we can identify the individuals who have certain other clinical disorders, in a sense, clinical disorders of what one would say uh, dysautonomia and not just gut pain. So we're seeing a more systemic neural uh, dysfunction. And the part that I find really remarkable is you can take a, looking even at college students and looking at this metric of those who have uh, some trauma history, not necessarily severe versus those that don't, you get separation of the distributions. If you look at individuals who have this cyclic vomiting, nausea chronically, they are distinct, but they look like, in a sense, many of the, they, it does have specificity because medical diagnosis functionally are more global than, than you're led to believe. So that uh, there's a, a disorder, it's a collagen disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. It's hypermobility syndrome is the subtype that we'll talk about. The issue with that becomes interesting in the world of psychology and mental health is because the individuals suffer from tremendous amount of anxiety, they have chronic pain, uh, but very few studies on autonomics. And we started doing those, and we found out that we could identify them with like an 80% confidence uh, in a distribution of kids coming into uh, basically a, a gut pain clinic based on vagal efficiency. Wow. So, and actually this was picked up in the major gastroenterology journal uh, where they wrote an editorial on what they call the vagal hypothesis as kind of like the, the future in that area. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to, to polyvagal theory versus polyvagal hypothesis. So there, people are saying it's, it's not science. Um, that seems ridiculous to me. Uh, what, what's your response to like science should have testable hypotheses right mm -hmm. it should be falsifiable yeah. it should it should be yeah. able to make guesses or as to yeah. what should happen and yeah. it also should be able to incorporate past knowledge i would assume into mm -hmm. the theory so 
what what do you have to say about as far as political theory is being a hypothesis or a oh, actual scientific well, theory? Well, uh, every okay. So there was an interesting paper. First of all, in the new paper, I discussed the fact that the impact of the theory is greatly underestimated because it can explain many hypotheses and many studies that have already been published. And there was a paper recently published that's cited in that paper on literally mindfulness and autonomic responses. Uh, which basically does a meta-analysis through the lens of the polyvagal theory to explain the effect. Although virtually every paper that's included in the meta-analysis didn't even acknowledge that. The other part that is extraordinarily interesting to me is that like even one of the major critics, Paul Grossman, all his research on heart rate variability can be explained by polyvagal theory. And so it's not like it's out there and it's irrelevant. It's it leads to testable hypothesis. And in this paper... Uh, so well, it, ha it has paper, explanatory power. You, you can apply this to other people's work yeah. and well, say, hey, I can explain this. Yeah, but the, the beauty of it is all you need to do is look at Google Scholar and you start seeing that it's been cited, I don't know, 20,000 times. And in those papers, what are they using it for? Not to criticize it, but to use it to explain their findings. They're using it as support. And so it, it's there and it's structured to set up certain hypotheses, like even the bit with the vagal efficiency, that's leading to specific hypotheses. Yeah. Uh, changes in vagal tone have been around. This is like 50 years, whether we talk about his heart rate variability or respiratory science or, anything, or vagal tone or the vagal break. Those hypotheses have been around and tested and reliable uh, phenomena. The So this is this is just ridiculous about it. Uh, I did make the statement that the theory wasn't uh, the theory from my perspective was to throw out the people to provide a different way of seeing things and to structure certain testable hypotheses. It wasn't like it was it was there and you know like you know you have to believe it. It's like it's there. Argue with it. Find alternative hypotheses. Do different explanations. The uh, the well, editorial. It Ultimately, it comes down to, hey, look, we have this issue, the vagal paradox. This doesn't make sense. Here's my yeah. answer. Here's my, yeah. you know. Yeah. That's yeah, how it started. Yeah. That's really at the core of it still. That's why I wrote the paper. That's why it's titled that way. Yeah. And the issue is, in that paper, I also talk about the heuristic value of the studying of the preterm. Because there can be no ambiguity in testing, let's say, the polyvagal hypothesis there of about the two different vagal uh, sources because in the preterm the ventral vagus just isn't there so you can see it there and then i had data in there talk about a rat study where we could see it developmentally because rats are born pre pretty prenatally uh in terms of the vagal regulation i would say they're born prenatally they're born with an immature vagal system you can see it developing day mm. by day and so the studies are there that test these hypotheses you have to read the theory you have to know what the theory is stating and you have to read the supporting literature if you don't want to read the supporting literature you don't want to read the theory and you can say anything you want and someone's going to believe you and it sounds believable uh, it does yeah well it does i mean it does, first reading, it, it, doesn't. Sounds... it mm. does to you it doesn't to... to me okay so it's like how people present cases how they present it um you have to say where's the evidence uh, that you're arguing with what is like the lungfish yeah. the point was 
he's the guy found a myelinated vagal fiber in a lungfish coming from the dorsal vagus. So what? Did it appear in, in amphibia or reptiles that occurred later? No. So it's a dead end in the phylogenetic evolutionary tree. So how does that have anything to do with polyvagal theory? It doesn't have anything even to do with evolution unless you think evolution is linear. Right. And it's not. And it changes and it reinvents itself. It, it, there's just an amazing bit. So like going back on one of the critics' criticisms, um, I did a study on reptiles because I was very curious about these respiratory rhythms. And the critics said, well, I, fatal flaws. There are no fatal flaws in the paper. The issue is uh, basically there was no heart rate. Uh, when we when we blocked the vagal system in the reptile, it had no effect on its heart rate variability. So the context, the, the, the basically the statement about these other respiratory rhythms in reptiles, they may be there, but they're not, doesn't mean that they are universally regulated through the vagus. Anyway, enough of that. More <laughs> positive things. The theory has great explanatory value and leads to interesting questions. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I'd like to share one other one, and that Please. was one other criticism, which is almost hilarious, was a criticism that reptiles are social. And you, one can say, oh, they do have social behavior, but it all depends on how you define social behavior. Right. And social behavior to any one of us humans is about our interactions with each other, uh, and, and which has a lot to do with facial expressivity, vocalization, gesture, and proximity. Reptiles have some type of social behavior, but it's not mammalian social behavior. So you have to understand where the theory lives it lives in a certain domain and it is not a domain of reptilian social behavior if someone wanted to falsify the polyvagal theory what would that look like it it you can't falsify it in the way that you're thinking okay. you can because the literature because of its explanatory value and let's say uh, i would say decades of data that can yeah. be explained the part that i find uh, more, okay, so there are hypotheses that would be generated, like the fact that the ability to document bradycardia in humans under uh, shutdown, it's, it's a hard experiment to conduct. That's why the preterm baby is the closest I could get to it, and bradycardias and babies. But that doesn't disprove it. But what I started to realize as I wrote this last paper is you might not have a dorsal vagal uh, heart rate bradycardia in everyone. It just may not be there okay. in the mature adult or the mature individual. However, you do have dorsal vagal defense reactions in all of them, and they may come up in terms of uh, contractility and blood pressure. And the, the literature was showing, as well as gut problems, the literature in other mammals was showing that animals of prey, small animals, tend to freeze and immobilize and have literally bradycardia and sometimes drop dead under so-called fright, while animals of prey will have dorsal vagal contractility changes, but not heart rate changes. Now, that becomes extraordinarily interesting in terms of niches of where animals fall. Mammals, they're all mammals we're talking about, fall in terms of these mechanisms. So 
I think there's a lot of flexibility in understanding the true autonomic signature of immobilized defense in humans. And I, I'm because it's too hard to set that that paradigm. Uh, one final question for fun. Uh, I talked with, so I have this uh, in my mind. I've, in my mind, I've always had this polyvagal trinity, which is yourself and Deb Dana and uh, Peter Levine. And I think of the Justice League trinity <laughs> or the DC trinity, which is Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Which of the three are you? Deb Dana already picked one. I'm curious what you would pick. Who are you out of those three? That's a tough one. Oh, so it's <laughs> well, it's very Batman, Superman, or Wonder Woman. No, I'm not Wonder Woman. I got that okay. one. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I, but I think Peter and I would both feel that we are from another, you know, I would say from another planet or from uh, individuals who uh, uh, whose biological parents may not have been their real parents. You know? okay. it's, it's because okay. uh, because of our, our... Peter, have you asked Peter this question? I've never met with him. I would, see, I would love to meet with him. I yeah. haven't done that yet. Yeah, I, I, I don't. And again, I think Batman has an edge. He's yeah. trying to right the wrong. I don't really have that edge. I don't think Peter has that edge. So I, th I think uh, mm. if you come into the world with a different lens and you try to navigate in that world, I think, you know, the Superman metaphor is fits more comfortably, but it's also a large responsibility once you take that, that image. So I'm not really happy <laughs> taking it. So I would say you're the more Batman. Uh, Peter's obviously brilliant but the more academic intellectual i would i would lean toward batman i would see peter more as superman he's out there i mean batman's out in the field too but superman's out there you know doing the direct kind of work is yeah. more how I, I see it so I, I would i'm gonna classify you guys in the in that so that that's the way it is i'm sorry i'll take it it's okay <laughs> all right this has been challenging and delightful i, I hope you had a good time and thank you so much yeah. for for doing this oh you're quite welcome and good to see you again. So, All so right. thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening this entire way through. This is a very long discussion and it wasn't all super easy. I know I struggle with a pretty good chunk of it in all, in all honesty, especially the vagal efficiency. I think there's a lot there that I need to keep coming back to. I really still am kind of struggling with the whole new mixed state thing. My, I have some questions there still, and I'm going to address those in a future episode. Although I'm super glad that I got some clarification on the whole stimulating the vagus nerve, that has never felt right to me, that kind of language. And it seems to really not be in the spirit of PVT and really what we can glean from it, which is not hacks and stimulation of the vagal nerve. That's not what we should be doing here, in my opinion. So it was good, really good for me, at least, to get some clarification on that and how I'm talking about this stuff. If you want to deepen your understanding of the polyvagal theory, I do have a nifty gifty for you, a freebie. When you sign up for my email list, I will send you a copy of my ebook, Trauma and the Polyvagal Paradigm. You get a deep dive into what the PVT is and learn how it directly connects to trauma. So again, a link in the description. When you sign up for my email list, I will send you Trauma and the Polyvagal Paradigm, my ebook. Otherwise, fellow Stuckna, I really hope you've enjoyed this conversation between Dr. Porter and I. I hope this episode has been a, a wonderful resource for you in learning about and applying the polyvagal theory. Bye. 
why I, I appreciate you. I was nervous about sending you that email saying, Hey, here's the questions I want to ask. Uh, I was nervous about it. I think for me, it feels, I don't feel like I'm challenging, but I feel like, Hey, I have some questions, like some real, you know, not, not skepticism exactly, but I have questions about this stuff. Where, you know, where are you at with in its process? I take it really seriously. I want to do the best I can to, Mm. you know, I talk about it a lot. And so it's extremely important to me that I represent your work accurately and then translate it for more general audience is extremely important. Now that I'm on the editorial board, it's even more important. So, you know, as I'm reading this stuff, it's like, I'm I'm asking myself, do I have a deep enough knowledge? And as a therapist, there's only so far I can go, but yeah, you know, do I have a deep enough knowledge to reply to people that are writing to PBI asking for feedback? So, you know, I, I was nervous, you know, putting that out there and saying, Hey, I have questions about this stuff. I'm I'm open for anything you want to ask me. Seems like yeah. you are, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then your response was, hey, here's a new paper. Boom. <laughs> this is going to answer, actually yeah. address a lot of my questions. Yeah. Okay, 